fall looking at 30 responses of the early church to this completed work of Jesus that he did while he was here on earth. Uh, We're going to see every Sunday a pair of active responses to Jesus in this series we're we're doing called 30 Acts. So 30 Acts total uh, in the book of Acts, and we're going to do two every Sunday. Our roadmap will follow accordingly this morning. So this morning we're going to read the church's third response in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. That's uh, their openness to experiencing God, the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to read also about their fourth response in verses 11 through, or sorry, uh, 12 through 41, which was to explain that experience of God, the Holy Spirit. So they, they're open to at that experience, and then they're going to explain that experience. So read with me, if you would, Acts chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were together, all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes or converts, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. We'll stop there. So many people, maybe even most of us, are predisposed to judging uh, extraordinary experiences as being, quote-unquote, from God. A case in point are um, American Christians who love both food and seeing Jesus and food. I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, Rosalie Lawson claims, for example, to have seen Jesus in this sour cream and onion potato chip. All right? Is it a, is it a miraculous experience from God or not? <laughs> Only you can tell. Uh, or what about this couple who, who saw Jesus take the shape of a Cheeto? Right? <laughs> a Florida pastor, pastor of Florida, <clears throat> who saw... Christ crucified appear while slicing potatoes for his potato salad. And, and finally, my personal favorite, uh, Donna Lee, who sold her, who sold her Jesus pierogi for over $1,700 on eBay. That's right. She made almost a cool 2000 on eBay because of her Jesus pierogi. Uh, so I don't know what your thoughts are seeing these sorts of things, but uh, it's a bit of a phenomenon. In fact, this phenomenon of seeing Jesus in food, or many things, got so big that a few years ago, uh, a research team from the University of Toronto conducted a study that concluded in 2014 and it published an award-winning report entitled Seeing Jesus in Toast, Neural and Behavior Correlates of Face uh, Paradelia. 
According to scientist Carl Sagan, I'm going to explain this, people tend to see familiar faces where none actually exist. It's a condition called pareidolia. And the reason for this is because of, quote, he says, an evolutionary need for human beings to need to see facial expression. He says our ancestors needed to identify friend or foe rather quickly in order to survive, right? And so there's, there's a survival instinct that kicks in from human beings from a long time ago, and they just start to see faces because they need to discern quickly. Kind of interesting. So why should we think anything different about when people say they've had miraculous experiences from God? What about what we just read this morning in Acts chapter 2? It's possible there's a scientific explanation. It's possible that somebody's wish fulfillment. Maybe, maybe devout people in a largely auditory culture, like the Jewish culture was back in the ancient Near East, maybe they want to see a miracle, right? And so they hear mighty but admittedly familiar works of God because that's what they want to hear. Well, I would suggest to you that Luke, who writes the book of Acts, as we talked about last week, this man who followed uh, Paul around, preaching the good news. Our author, Luke, Luke's is a trustworthy account. I believe Luke's is a trustworthy account. One of the reasons I believe this, kind of cool story, around the turn of the 20th century, a, uh, a very reputable but agnostic, in other words, he, he didn't acknowledge God at all in his life, a Sir, Sir William Ramsey, he was, he was a scholar, wanted to develop a historical and, and geographical study of first century Asia Minor. But he was consistently taught growing up and as a young man that the New Testament was not an uh, accurate resource, an accurate historical resource for that kind of research. However, upon investigation, he kept running into archaeological discoveries that were confirmed only in the book of Acts. He says this, and you'll see the quote up here on the screen. I set out with a mind unfavorable to Acts, to the book of Acts, but concluded Luke's history is unsurpassed in its trustworthiness. In fact, it was the historical reliability of this book that we're reading this morning that ignited Ramsey's decision to trust his life to Jesus. This began his faith journey just recognizing, oh my gosh, I can only confirm archaeological evidence by looking at cities and places mentioned in this book. Fascinating. And we can observe Luke's attention to historical detail when he says with such specificity, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, as he says in our passage. It seems like he interviewed each people group in different nations. And he's going to say, as you'll see at the end of our story, he counted <laughs> converts to Jesus up to 3,000 persons. In other words, incredible specificity. But there's still skeptics. I get it. When Luke says in verse 11 that the, the new Greek and possibly also Aramaic-speaking church starts to declare literally the mega works of God, right? the call of Abraham, deliverance from Egypt, the clearing of the promised land, in languages they've never before learned or, or probably even heard in their lives, to some, that sounds like religious propaganda, and that's what Luke's writing. But I think when a formerly agnostic expert in his field with no, no ulterior motive suggests that Luke's account is worth taking seriously, it also means that the, the incredible miracle he's talking about in this passage is probably worth taking seriously as well. 
So Luke's is a trustworthy account. Luke's is also a unique account. And that's important for us to understand this morning as well. Can the Pentecost happen again today? The answer is no. It happened one time. The Pentecost, we understand the Pentecost is the Holy Spirit's introduction to the new age in which God will be with believers forever because of what Jesus did. God will be with believers forever through the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus did. The Pentecost, Pentecost does three things in our lives. This historical event does three things in our lives. Number one, the Pentecost, Pentecost uh, initiates spiritual birth. You'll see in our passage that it, the sound of the Holy Spirit coming was like the sound of a mighty rushing wind, which echoes, if that sounds familiar to you, it echoes the words of Jesus in John chapter 3 about persons being born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. That's because at this moment, the Holy Spirit is coming to initiate, to initiate new birth within, within people. The Pentecost also makes possible reconciliation. Reconciliation between people. It's, it's the reversal of the Tower of Babel. One of the first stories in the Bible, if you're not familiar with the Bible, one of the first stories in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 11, all these different nations come together to, quote, make a name for ourselves. They wanted to be exalted. So they say, we're going to come together and make a name for ourselves. They build this tower that God frustrates by confusing their speech. And he assigns them all now different languages so they can't communicate. Here, the church gathers in one place to humbly make a name for Jesus, Right? And out of many languages, the Holy Spirit brings one unified message. It's a reversal of what happened back in Genesis 11. People exalted themselves, tried to make a name for themselves. Here, out of many different languages, a name is being made for Jesus with one message. In other words, the barriers that divide us culturally, different nations, different languages, can be broken down in Jesus Christ. The Pentecost also empowers witness. It's interesting, the Pentecost was originally a Jewish festival that, that celebrated the, the end of the barley harvest and the beginning of the wheat harvest. And Jesus once said, you might remember, that the harvest is plentiful and that he was the, quote, Lord of the harvest. So what the Holy Spirit does, he uses the, the preaching of Peter to, quote, unquote, reap a harvest, right? Reap 3,000 souls of God's first harvest, as we're going to see as we read on in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost gives us new birth, makes possible reconciliation, and empowers our witness, our sharing of our faith. But it's a unique event in history. We can no more experience Pentecost than we can uh, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. However, we're all living in a Pentecostal area because, era because the Holy Spirit continues to flow through the promised gift of Jesus Christ. Um, in, this sense, in this sense, we are all lowercase p Pentecostal. Let me say that again. If you follow Jesus, you are a lowercase p Pentecostal because the Holy Spirit continues to conceive new birth. He brings people from all different backgrounds under the banner of Jesus. Right? And he continues to empower us and help us as we share our faith with others. One helpful way to, to kind of envision this, I wanted to give us a picture this morning. One helpful way to envision the, the Holy Spirit's arrival at Pentecost is like an earthquake in the middle of an ocean. 
Okay? And, and sadly, many of us living where we live are familiar with earthquakes. But the, imagine, if you will, earthquake in the middle of an ocean, the epicenter of which sends out ripples. As it sends out ripples, those waves grow and grow and go further and further. Sometimes causing, you know, we get an, we get an aftershock, cause waves to spike. And that's similar to what happens with the Pentecost. The earthquake has happened. But we get these aftershocks to continue to cause the waves to ripple. So we still today get heightened sensitivity to sin or rebellion against God. We still get people turning from the rebellion against God to God himself. We get people overcoming idols and addiction in their lives. We get to see prayer work wonders. We get to see emotional and physical healing in people's lives. We even sometimes get to see revivals among certain people groups. And it's wonderful because we are experiencing Pentecost aftershocks, even today. Well, I was trying to think some examples of this. And so I, I did a little communication this week. I'm still getting to know you dear folks here at PCC. Um, so I, I instead reached out. I hope this is okay. I wasn't trying to betray you. But I reached out to some of my former, some people in my former church uh, whose walk with God I deeply respect uh, who've, and I know experienced some of these Pentecost aftershocks in their own lives. So a few of these uh, got back with me. I, one woman was sharing about her consolation she received from the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus four times calls our comforter, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Her dad died suddenly from a heart attack at age 59 when she was just a kid. But that morning, the morning on his death, he left a Bible verse on the kitchen table. And it was Romans 8.28. For we know God works all things for the good of those who love him. And that was the last thing he left her. Another woman who had a urinary tract infection now persisted and multiple strains of antibiotics could not fix until one day a woman prayed for, for her for healing. And she showed no symptoms from that day forward. Right? A gentleman shared with me uh, about hearing God's call to move Upon hearing that call, he received almost, uh, almost immediately a buyer for his home, all his, all his valuables, even his business was bought. Within a very short period of time, there was provision across the board because the Holy Spirit was at work in his life. A man who attended a Promise Keepers event saw barriers broken down between people of different cultures and started not only confessing sin, but weeping with other men who he knew would be ashamed to weep in front of, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit working in their lives. Uh, I've twice experienced during worship services, or actually a few times, almost uncontrollable joy and laughter just by worshiping God through song, personally. These are the kinds of things the Holy Spirit continues to do. Amen. Now, many of us, many Christians, many followers of Jesus, we remain what I call practical deists. In fact, I'm a former card carry member of this organization. What I mean by that, a deist is someone who believes that God created the world, wound it up like a clock, and then just sort of let it go so that those of us who live here today kind of deal with all the rest of the stuff. He does, God doesn't intervene. He wound up the universe, wound up the world like a clock. We deal with the rest. And sometimes followers of Jesus, we, we live like God rescued us through Jesus. God has started, but now the rest of life is pretty much up to us. Like we got to figure it out now. Let me give you a few ways, if you've kind of gotten stuck in that rut, let me give you a few ways 
a few steps to maybe defeat practical deism in your life. Not thinking that God wants to be involved anymore. Number one, start by doing this. Ask God to just help you make room for a new category. Some of us just need to, to open up, <laughs> to, to, to not put God in a box any longer. Help him, ask him to help you make room for a new category in your life. And once you begin to open up to that, and when you're ready, here would be a second step. Declare to God that you are now ready to experience anything you see in the Bible. These things we see Jesus do, the things we see in the book of Acts, declare to God that you're open to that happening in your life as well. That's a big request. (laughs) I recognize that. It also might mean giving up almost everything you own, so be ready for that. All right, number three, I would suggest starting with a basic need of yours in your life that's not currently being met. So just start with something simple. Something simple in your life, a basic need is not currently being met. It could be anything. Anything in that area, pray for that this week. Ask him to do something in that area of your life this week. And number four, let someone in on that request. Let one person in your life, it could be a spouse, a friend, uh, an adult child, uh, whatever, or, or your child, so they can pray with you. Let one person in on that request. And just watch, learn, and rejoice at what the Spirit is going to do in and through your life. Just through that. And it is a joy, friends. Now, are these experiences meant simply for us? Not at all. They're meant not only to be shared with others, but also to be explained to others. And that's the second act we see among God's people in Acts chapter 2. Is they explain this experience. We're going to see one of their members explain this experience. Look, Look with me, though, first at verse 12. All were amazed, so they see people speaking in their own language who never before knew their language. They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. So some people are genuinely curious, right? They're all, they're amazed, people are perplexed. What does this mean? They want to know what, what are speaking in my language, people who didn't know my language, what is this supposed to mean? What, how am I supposed to interpret this? But the reality check comes in verse 13. If you don't or can't explain a divine experience in your life, someone else will. A cynical friend, neighbor, relative, and it won't be flattering. As we see in verse 13, they're like, yeah, right. They're just drunk. That's what's happening here. So this past week, um, Reno and Donna were nice enough to have me over to their home for dinner. Thank you, guys. I had a good time. Reno, you're a great cook, i got to say. Uh, apparently legendary, as I've shared that with others. Uh, Reno, at one point, shared an experience, and they gave me permission to share this, but experience of God visiting him in, in a vision or dream during surgery, telling him that it's not his time yet. He had that happen in his life. At another point, Donna shared how um, some preschool children with whom she was working, uh, she had them pray daily for, for a little baby, who was diagnosed with Down syndrome in utero. And every day, she and those those little kids, they prayed for this child, and guess what? The baby came out completely healthy. No Down syndrome. And as as I listened, I believed them, and I rejoiced. But but simultaneously, I also kind of wondered, you know, I'm sure they've shared these stories before, 
I wonder how their families responded. I wonder what their neighbors have thought as they hear about these awesome experiences, right? What were they really thinking? You know, it's, it, it's because of that kind of cynicism that Peter stands up. The Apostle Peter stands up ready to explain a miraculous experience. All right, so we're going to read about Peter's explanation of a miracle, the miracle of the Holy Spirit, helping them speak in languages they've never before known, in verses 14 through 41. It's a long passage. We'll get through it. Verses 14 through 41, Peter stands up to explain what happens. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's nine in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapors, smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So he's talking about miracles again, isn't he? And he explains that why, why miracles? Well, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, killed, and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, so King David, about you know, 500, well, 900 years before Jesus was around, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, their understanding of, of basically hell that day or, or, or death that day. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand and received the, uh, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now when, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles' brothers, what shall we do? Peter said, repent or turn from sin to God, to Jesus, 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, this gift of God with them forever. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, they bore witness, continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So it would be uh, unfair for me to read this to you, exhort you to just do what Peter did, and boom, drop the mic, and I walk out of here. Right? And you're good to go, right? Let's just, that, just, just say what Peter said. God does something great in your life, or you see some, God do something great in someone else's life, I'll just read this sermon to my friends. Please don't do that. But it would also be uh, unhelpful if I encouraged you when explaining God's word to a friend, spouse, or neighbor, you know, apply a 500-year-old prophecy to their life, Follow it up with talk of signs and wonders, the crucifixion of Jesus. Use fancy words like foreknowledge. And then weave two psalms about Jesus' resurrection into your explanation. Probably also not realistic or fair, right, to do that over dinner or a conversation on your front lawn. But it would be equally unfair to talk about a sign or wonder, something great God did in your life or the life of someone else, and just say, well, God did the sign or wonder just to make a sigh and wonder and just not explain it at all. We cannot leave it alone. What would be wise is for us to follow Peter's pattern of explanation, connect miraculous experiences of God to the good news of Jesus in a way that other people can understand, in a culturally relevant way. Great thing God did, answer to prayer, connect it back to Jesus in a way that people can understand, a culturally relevant way. And that's our message in a nutshell this morning. When you share your stories or see God work in another's story, explain how an experience of God connects to Jesus in a culturally relevant way, in a way someone can understand. Peter's strategy behind what he says is as important as the content of what he says. He takes a miracle Right? Connects it to Jesus in a way that he knows his audience will understand. And so ought we. So once again, explain how an experience of God connects to Jesus, but in a culturally relevant way. Build that bridge to people's lives. Let me unpack this for us a little bit. First, connect that experience of God to the redemptive reign of King Jesus. Eight times in 13 verses here, Peter connects Pentecost to Jesus' resurrection. His basic message is this. The same Jesus you killed, he defeated death. He reigns in heaven. He sent us as witnesses. He sent his Holy Spirit as evidence of his rule and his reign. Some say, you can't begin to explain the work of the Holy Spirit, but along with Peter, who's just done it, I would disagree. No, you can. And that's what Peter does. It's interesting that during his ministry and prior to the cross, Jesus never refused, never refused to do a work or a miracle, except twice. Twice he refused. Matthew chapter 12, and again in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was asked to show a sign. He was asked to do basically a magic trick for people. And he refused with the same reply. It's important. Listen to this. He says, no sign shall be given to you except the sign of Jonah. That's a weird response. What the heck, what the heck is he talking about? The sign of Jonah. Well, if you don't know, and that's fine if you don't, Jonah was an Old Testament 
prophet. There's a story in the Old Testament about Jonah who gets swallowed by a whale, enters the belly of the beast, and eventually gets thrown up by the whale. So swallowed, goes down, sits in the belly of the beast, thrown up by the whale. And Jesus is saying that with all my miracles, I don't do them for no reason. I do them because all of them point to my death, burial, and resurrection. Jonah was a story that pointed towards death going down, burial, being in the belly, and resurrection, being thrown up out of the whale. As do all of Jesus' miracles point to his redemptive work. Jesus did not do signs and wonders again for the heck of it. It was always redemptive. He was either protecting or restoring life, right? He was calming an angry sea. He was healing a paralytic. He was raising a friend from death. He was letting a woman know, a woman he's never met before, about her marital and dating history so she might get serious about restoring her life. Why? This is why Jesus does miracles. And that's why today the Holy Spirit continues to send in our life these, these Pentecost aftershocks, these wonderful things to remind us of Jesus' conclusive rule and reign. Because one day he's going to fully redeem and restore our lives. So these are like little, little tastes, little tastes of that full re- restoration, little taste of, of that full healing in our lives he does today. Let me give you three examples of how to do this, how to connect the activity of the Holy Spirit with Jesus' redemptive reign today. Let's say the Holy Spirit heals you or someone you know or answers a prayer for healing. You can remind people that the Bible says that one day, one day that God's going to give you a brand new body. The Bible says that God's going to give you a brand new body, an imperishable one. We're all going to be changed. So that example of answers to prayer about healing is just a reminder that one day you're going to receive a perfect body, a perfectly healed one. Let's say the Spirit miraculously provides for a need. Maybe you can't pay a bill, but, but somehow he provides. Maybe it's through a friend, through someone else, someone in the church. Well, the Bible also says that those who trust Jesus will one day be completely rid of water and light bills, water and electricity bills. He'll one day provide water without cost, and Jesus himself will be our sun and our light. The end of the Bible talks about this, right? So his provision now for your water, right, to pay a water bill, is just a hint that one day Jesus will be our water forever. I've mentioned that a few times I've experienced uh, joy and almost uncontrollable laughter uh, during worship through songs. It's only happened a few times in my life. Well, there's a psalm about Jesus that says that he'll make me full of gladness at his presence. Now he's given me just a little bit, a little taste of that, a little hors d'oeuvre of the full meal now today through the Holy Spirit. So connect that work of God in your life or the life of someone else to Jesus, but do so in a culturally relevant way. That's the other part I want to unpack here. Those present at Pentecost that day, they were all Jewish. Thus, Peter Peter knows his audience, right? So he uses multiple Old Testament references, because that was their Bible, to connect a radical experience of God to the person of Jesus. He's just being culturally relevant. He knows his audience. He knows his audience, knows these scripture references, so he connects it to Jesus. Just like the Apostle Paul is culturally relevant, as we'll see later in Acts 17, when he's speaking to people at a marketplace in Athens, people who have no knowledge of the Bible. Guess what? Paul doesn't use a Bible verse. 
because he speaks to them in a culturally relevant way, in a way they can understand. I want to encourage you, be wise, my friends. Explain your experience by connecting an experience to Jesus along the bridge of their cultural experience. Now, there's no neat and tidy formula for this. You just have to know the times in which you live. I would encourage you, ask with, with sincerity, you know, what interests people who are, are of a different age than you, who don't look like you, don't, don't vote like you, don't talk like you. Ask what interests them, what things that they care about, what are their passions, what are their interests, what are the things that they love. Then you'll get to know how to share Christ with them, how to talk to them in a culturally relevant way about great things that God has done. Let me give you an example. Uh, there's a large segment of our population today, this is an example of how you might do this, there's a large segment of our culture, if not most of us today, who are attracted to mega personalities. So, in the, in the religious world, you could say, there are pastors of mega churches who, who sort of rise and often fall, but in the meantime, there's something about what they do that's very attractive to people. There are CEOs of big corporations. Now, back in the day, in the 1980s, people weren't fawning and going crazy over Lee Iacocca, and he wasn't out there in media all the time talking. But now you got Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, who are major influencers, not just because of their products. They are out there. They are in the culture, and people are attracted to them. You have politicians with big personalities who offer the hope of cutting through all the bureaucratic bull and red tape to give you exactly what you need, and people love it. Why is that? <laughs> I think it's because we want, there's part of the that want our lives to be directly powered, empowered with genuine change. We want someone who could, who could directly empower our lives with change. And we see these figures who've done it in their own lives or in others' lives. And people are looking put it simply, for a superhero. And it might sound cheesy, but it's true. There's a reason why Marvel and DC Comics, their, their movies and their shows are now more popular than they ever have been. And they're just multiplying and multiplying because they offer someone who can affect, who can empower, and who can change lives directly. And there's something about that that's attractive to people. This is where you can be culturally relevant and yet connected with Jesus. We can share stories of real power and connect them to a man who loved the unlovely and the marginalized. Evil men in power hated that his kingdom was a kingdom of humble misfits. They hated it so much that they killed him for it. But he overcame death, rising from it, to prove to all the misfits that his promises of forever forgiveness and God on their side is actually true. Let's share that message. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask your help this morning. We ask first to, for your help to seek experiencing you more in our lives, to open us up to more of that, open us up to praying for big things, open us up to experiencing uh, healing or provision or for something we wouldn't even expect to happen. And also, Holy Spirit, give us the wisdom to connect these experiences to Jesus, to his good news. So for some of us this morning, Holy Spirit, we need an openness. 
an openness for you to use our prayers, to use our gifts in supernatural ways. But we confess to you, we don't want to experience those things from you just for the feel-goods, just for the spiritual goosebumps. We want to experience those things because we want to, to take them and share them and share how they are connected with Jesus. That one day Jesus will do fully what he's done in our story. That Jesus will do forever what he's done in our lives temporarily. And we want to show people in ways, whether it's through uh, the, the desire for a superhero or for whatever it might be, in culturally relevant ways. So help us be wise, help us listen to people, and connect our stories and our experiences to King Jesus in ways they can understand. Please help us with this. Help us be a church that does this well. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.